I am Evan Smith. I am the CEO and editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, and it is truly my pleasure to formally welcome you to the 2014 Texas Tribune Festival here on the University of Texas at Austin campus. This is the fourth Tribune Festival that has been held on this campus, and we are thrilled to have had the hospitality and generosity of the president of the University of Texas, Bill Powers, and his staff. Uh, this campus is a, is a really wonderful venue for the festival to take place, and as the festival has grown, the willingness of the university to accommodate us in more and different ways has also grown. And so every, yeah, let's give them a hand. That's great. They are one of our presenting sponsors, and I always ask President Powers, since you are in his house, we are all in his house, I ask President Powers every year to come out and say a few words of welcome. Please join me in welcoming the president of the University of Texas at Austin, Bill Powers. Thank you. Well, thank you, Evan. Uh, what a pleasure it is for me to welcome all of you here tonight to TribFest and to the University of Texas at Austin. It really is an honor for us to have you on our campus. Uh, this event, TribFest, I think is vitally important to our civic life, to our political life, to our cultural life. It's also wonderful having you on the campus because this is a tremendous opportunity for our students to learn, uh, for our faculty, and for our staff. Uh, so Evan, let me thank you for bringing TribFest to the University of Texas. Uh, and let me just take this moment to congratulate you. I remember talking to Evan about six years ago when it was his idea to do this and came over and asked if UT might be a place to do it. Uh, Evan, you had very high expectations for this, uh, and it has, I think, uh, exceeded even those expectations. What a wonderful event, sort of a south by southwest of ideas and culture and politics. Uh, but I do want to congratulate Evan and everyone at the Tribune uh, for creating and bringing this event about. Yeah, this would be a chance for me to brag a little about our campus, and many of you have heard us do it. Uh, but I do want to just talk about two things on the campus that for those of you who aren't so familiar with our campus, I hope you'll have a chance this weekend to see. Uh, the Harry Ransom Center, uh, maybe one of the two or three great archival centers in the world. Uh, Joyce's papers, the Watergate papers, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, it does have uh, an exhibit on Gone with the Wind right now, which I think you will very, very much enjoy if you get a chance. And then the Blanton Art Museum is always uh, a great place to visit on our campus. But in terms of bragging on our campus, uh, we say what starts here changes the world. And I think... Uh, we can back that up. But nothing changes the world more than our students who graduate every year. Uh, and you are about to see an example of that. I remember meeting George P. Bush two or three days before he started law school. Uh, he was a great, wonderful young man then. And then to see him go through an experience on the campus and go out 
and change the world than they'll be changing the world in the future. That is what the University of Texas is about. So again, thank you. We're looking forward to a great, great weekend. And on behalf of 70,000 faculty, students, and staff on our campus, let me say welcome and hook. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very great. President Powers, thanks very much. I'm, I'm of course, aware that uh, uh, your time as president is coming to an end, and so by next year's Tribune Festival, you will be a civilian, and I'd be happy to sell you the first ticket to next year's festival. <laughs> so let me thank again uh, our presenting sponsor, the University of Texas at Austin, along with our other presenting sponsors, South by Southwest and Texas Natural Gas Now, very generously supporting this festival. Uh, Texas Natural Gas Now has been with us in one form or another since the very beginning, and the South by Southwest people know how to run a festival, and they make it so easy for us to be on this campus. Let's please acknowledge all of our presenting sponsors. I want to thank our other sponsors as well. We do it at the beginning and the end. We would do it more often if it made sense to do it, but the fact is at the beginning and the end we get to thank the organizations and institutions that support this festival. Please hold your applause until the end. AAA Texas, AARP, America's Natural Gas Alliance, the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Participation, the Association of Texas Professional Educators, AT&T, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, the Center for Politics and Governance at the LBJ School of Public Affairs, the Central Texas Regional Mobility Authority, CPS Energy, Crosswind Communications, Deloitte, Doctors Hospital at Renaissance, Exxon Mobil, Google, the Greater Texas Water Company, HEB, Harmony Public Schools, Hill and Knowlton Strategies, IBC Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, Lockheed Martin Aeronautics, Lumina Foundation, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, the Medill School of Journalism, Methodist Healthcare Ministries, Pearson, Progress Texas, Prosperity Bank, Raise Your Hand Texas, the Schweike Media Printing Company, Southwest Airlines, Spread Fast, SureScore, Tesla Motors, the Texas A&M University System, Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, Texas X's, Texas Hospital Association, the Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation, the Monument Group, the Nature Conservancy, the University Co-op, the University of Texas Press, Uber, USAA, Valero, Vianovo, Walmart, and WGU Texas are all sponsors of the 2014 Texas Tribune Festival. Please give them a hand. Let me also acknowledge our media partners, Culture Map, Houston Public Media, KLRU, KUT News, Texas Monthly, The New York Times, Twitter, and Univision Communications, along with the official hotel of the Texas Tribune Festival, the AT&T Executive Education and Conference Center. Another hand for those guys, please. We always say that our sponsors have no bearing on the content or panel descriptions or panelists for our programs, but they do support the Tribune's mission, and we thank them very much for that, as well as all of you who are members of the Tribune. We thank you very well for supporting us, uh, uh, too. We are approaching our fifth anniversary in business. November the 3rd this year will be the fifth anniversary of the Tribune. I'm very proud to say that we're making it work. We're an award-winning and acclaimed news organization, uh, not just in Texas, but around the country, um, uh, and around the world. According to the Pew Research Center, we have the largest newsroom of any news organization covering a state house of any kind, for-profit or non-profit, in the country after five years. And as of this morning, we have passed $25 million raised from individuals, foundations, and corporations to support a sustainable model for serious journalism. Always we like these things to happen in Texas, and we're so proud of the fact that we've been able to make the Texas Tribune work 
Thanks to all of you for your generous support of the Tribune. We appreciate it. After this opening session of the festival, we invite you to join us on the main mall under the UT Tower for the festival's opening night party. This conversation will last about 40 to 45 minutes. There'll be 15 minutes of questions from the audience, and we will end at 60 minutes. Please silence your phones, and if you're going to tweet, use the hashtag TribuneFest or hashtag TTF Keynote. And now, I am pleased to introduce the opening session of the 2014 Texas Tribune Festival, the fourth such opportunity we've had to begin our weekend by putting one of the most important players in Texas politics and public policy on a very big stage. The opening session sets the tone for the many discussions to come over the next two days. It should be substantive and interesting and provocative and maybe even make a little news. And so we've always chosen carefully. In 2011, when the opening session was still on Saturday morning, it was Senator John Cornyn. The next year, on the heels of his run for president, our Friday night kickoff was Governor Rick Perry. Last year, still in the belly of the government shutdown, it was Senator Ted Cruz, live from Washington, D.C. This year, with the two major party gubernatorial candidates committed to be in the Valley for their first debate, as you just saw, we decided to do something a little different, to turn our gaze toward the future, to someone who we imagine may, depending upon the outcome of the November election, may, be part of our little world for some time to come. That someone is George P. Bush, the Republican nominee for land commissioner in 2014. You may be thinking reasonably, an hour-long sit-down with a guy running for land commissioner? A guy who's never been on the ballot before. Ah, but this is no ordinary candidate. This is indeed Mr. Bush's first run for elective office, his long-anticipated and eagerly awaited entry into the family business. The grandson of former President George H.W. Bush, the nephew of former President George W. Bush, and the son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. He is the founder of St. Augustine Partners, an investment firm focused on oil and gas transactions, and the co-founder of Pennybacker Capital, a real estate private equity firm. He previously worked as a corporate attorney at the Aiken Gump Law Firm, and before that clerked for a federal judge. He's also taught high school history. Mr. Bush has been a naval reservist since 2006, he did an eight-month tour of duty in Afghanistan in 2010 as part of the Special Operations Command and was awarded the Joint Service Commendation Medal for Meritorious Service. He's long been active in Republican politics. A one-time Deputy Finance Chair of the Republican Party of Texas, Mr. Bush co-founded the Hispanic Republicans of Texas organization and served as a national co-chair of Maverick PAC. A native of Houston, he has an undergraduate degree from Rice University and a law degree from the University of Texas. Please join me in welcoming George P. Bush. Absolutely. Good to see you. Appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Good. Great to Please. join you. Mr. Bush, good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thank you for having me. Very happy to have you. This is uh, really the first sort of this interview, kind of interview that you've done, right? Where have you been? You've been out on the campaign trail. I have. Uh, it's hard to believe that I've been campaigning now for 22 months, traveling right. this great state, uh, traveled over 160 counties. Uh, I think in total I've delivered over 400 speeches and right. uh, met with ranchers, farmers, uh, folks of all backgrounds in this great state and have learned that truly we are our own special people and it's been uh, a fascinating experience for me on a personal level, for my family, right. and uh, looking forward to, to working hard these last few weeks. But as somebody not very experienced in politics, somebody who grew up around it but was never actually running for office before, presumably you needed to get your sea legs over the last year. I'm reminded of your uncle George W. Bush when he ran against Ann Richards in 
1994 was a little bit like opening the play in New Haven. Before they went to Broadway, they wanted to send him out a little bit on the road and get comfortable, right? Before he was before a big audience. Well, um, you know, at least in my campaign, uh, I made a, a pledge to, to reach out to as many Texans from all uh, backgrounds, uh, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, yep. uh, to, to, and then to the extent that I could respect the, the great people uh, that work in the general land office, uh, all 660 full-time employees, uh, to study the agency as, as closely as I possibly could and uh, conduct my diligence uh, before going out there in the, in the primary uh, process. But uh, it's been a, just an amazing experience getting yeah. around the state and, um, and uh, an incredible experience working hard for, uh, for service to this great state. Wondering why you decided to run. I'm, I'm tempted to say that it was the call of the bush, right? <laughs> the, 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 uh, the magnetic pull of the surname may be too great. Um, what did growing up Bush teach you about public service? You obviously grew up around people who served at all levels, and this was the, fam I said, the family business. Well, I, I, wouldn't describe, I, I would describe it more as a, a desire to serve others. Uh, if there's one principle I learned from my uncle, my dad, my grandfather, was always thinking about others before thinking about yourself. Yep. And that's what's drawn me personally to, to public service. Uh, not all Bushes are in politics. There's... Uh, I believe 18 grandchildren, and I'm, right. I'm the only one that's uh, actually crazy enough to enter the political arena. But uh, right. but Barbara, Jenna, you name it, they've they've chosen public service. Other, in other lives, right? Absolutely, built other lives. Do you worry some of the people who don't want to see you particularly succeed in this job say, well, he wouldn't be up there if his name were Smith, or if his well, name were Jones? That only because his name is Bush is he getting to the head of the line? What do you say about that? Well, I'm running for the right reasons. I'm running because my boy, P, he's 15 months old, and I want to be able to ensure that the Texas he inherits is in as good a position as the one that we're all enjoying in today's day and age. Right. Uh, that's really what's my driving impetus in terms of serving Texas to ensure that we're in as good a position. But you don't, you don't uh, think you have an advantage by having this particular surname that maybe somebody else who has the same experience set would not have? I, I think there's some benefits, but what I've been talking about on the campaign trail is that I'm an inner-city public high school teacher. I'm yep. a military veteran. I'm an oil and gas businessman. And those are three key skill sets that you need to be a, an effective land commissioner, which deals with the 13 million acre portfolio of, of mineral rights and is a, a chairman of the Veterans Land Board, which helps to ally veterans with the private sector so that we can serve those who have served in the highest calling possible. Yeah. You, you actually just answered my next question, which is why this job? In fact, the three legs of the stool for this job are energy, education, and veterans and you are kind of check all those boxes, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, something that I'm extraordinarily passionate about. There's 21 functional areas to the agency, so it literally touches every Texan in every uh, possible way imaginable, but yeah. the three core areas I've been campaigning on is my skill sets in those three areas. Let, let's, let's talk about those one at a time, if, if you uh, would. I want to draw you out on, on how you feel about the responsibilities uh, of the office, beginning with, with energy. Now, this is not a railroad commission job you're seeking, so you're not going to be one of the state's energy regulators, but you do have a platform to talk about energy. Uh, your responsibilities, I understand, is land commissioner. You negotiate uh, drilling contracts, collect royalty fees and other payments from energy companies operating in, in Texas on the lands that you manage and control. That's correct. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the skill sets that I've been talking about is as, as an attorney, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner in that space, I feel like I could generate more revenue in a responsible, an environmentally responsible way. Yep. Uh, more revenues from our Transpecus Minerals, the upper panhandle, which mostly feeds into the Permanent University Fund. Uh, but the Permanent School Fund, for the first time this year, generated close to a billion dollars. Right. It's the first time in Texas State 
history, and most of the minerals are actually in the path of, of new development. Uh, so along with our railroad commission, your land commissioner gets to win on designing the right blueprint for an energy secure policy, but not only for traditional hydrocarbon development, but also alternatives. Yeah. Uh, one of the largest offshore wind farm developments was signed by uh, your current land commissioner, Jerry Patterson, in, in South Texas, um, and with the cost effectiveness uh, potentially for alternatives in the, sh in the, in the medium to long term, your, your land commissioner will continue to build out a diversified portfolio of, of energy sources. Now, you, you mentioned a lot of different kinds of energy in there. And in fact, you said on your website, and I know you told our reporter for the Tribune, Nina Satija, that you really uh, believe in an any and all strategy on, on energy. I think your exact quote to Nina, the message is clear. We need all forms of energy. In the short term, it's hydrocarbon. In the medium term, I think we eventually transition to a natural gas-based energy economy and then in the long-term, renewables. So you're, you're not picking one over the other. You kind of want to do any and all. Well, I think when you look at rolling blackouts from two summers ago yep. and, and the potential nationwide for within a generation being truly energy secure, and one thing I've been talking about on the campaign trails, when I was graduating here at UT in Austin, we were importing two-thirds of our required petroleum products to power our nation's needs. Now we're roughly at a quarter. And experts, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, you name them, they say that within 10 years, we will only need Canadian and Mexican oil to power our nation's needs. Uh, what this means is a lowering of our trade deficit, a stronger American dollar, uh, a, a more job creation in, in our great state. So, um, you know, there's obviously perils with this growth and this challenge and, and, and this development of our economy. Um, no, make no mistake, but, but it's, all, it's all very exciting. Okay. What about the impact of the energy boom that we've seen over the last couple of years on, on the state of Texas? Obviously, it's been an economic engine for the state. It's helped us weather the recession. It's provided a lot of jobs. It's provided a lot of wealth to communities around the state. Um, but of course, it's also had an impact on resources. It's had an impact on these communities that may not entirely be positive. In fact, you talk a lot about the responsible stewardship of resources in places where we're enjoying uh, booming energy times. Can you talk about what you mean by that, please? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that we have a responsibility to, and your land commissioner has a pivotal role to raise awareness around the Gulf Coast. I mean, here you have 367 miles, and I'm a Highlander. I'm from Fort Worth, and um, a lot of North Texans and folks from the Panhandle aren't aware of the great things that are happening on the, on the Gulf Coast, whether it's the largest petrochemical facility that you'll find in North America or the fact that 25% of our state's population is in the coastal zone. But there's a, there's a lot uh, of attention, I think, that in hopefully in the next session that will be diverted towards disaster recovery. The fact that we are uh, hurricane uh, category three, four, five storm away from uh, a potential disaster economically for our state at or near uh, the Houston MSA. And so your land commissioner has to work together with uh, county judges, with mayors to design a, a long-term policy so that we can be prepared for the next uh, long-term storm. That doesn't even touch on the numerous oil spills that uh, we are responsible for taking on in, in terms of a first response uh, role, statutory role that we have. You're a believer in uh, more drilling on public lands. Controversial position in some quarters. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, you know, somebody who's been in the private sector, who's been in the energy industry, I'm I'm excited with the, the development, the, the leveraging of new technologies and completion techniques have generated billions of dollars for our public school systems. The market cap for the PSF and the PUF together uh, roughly is $32 billion, and the annual revenues, as I mentioned before, generate a, about a billion, a billion dollars, dollars right. for, for K through 12. 
this is an extraordinary treasure that Sam Houston and the forefathers of the state of Texas left for future generations of Texans. But we should do it in an environmentally responsible way. Right. And um, you know, your land commissioner can do that and find that balance. I don't buy into the false narrative of protecting the environment on one side and economic development on the other. I think we can do both. Well, in fact, you've said specifically that it's a, the, the false, the days of false choices between protecting the environment on the one hand and promoting job creation, those false choices are over. How, how do you do both? And, and what, what are you trying to protect about the environment and how do you do both? Well, you know, the general land office, a little known as we also have a conservation role yep. in, in the agency, and I, I want to implement more conservation easements, not necessarily in perpetuity, but based on a, on a generational basis. Where you have, I've had a chance to meet many ranchers and farmers throughout the state that want to preserve parts of our state, whether it's the Gulf Coast or uh, the Trans-Pecos Corridor, recently the Powderhorn Ranch, which was uh, a, a huge win for Texas Parks and Wildlife. Um, and the, the future of Texas, I think, can be conserved in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a responsible way. Uh, but there's a historic opportunity with the newer completion techniques that have been perfected since the, the shale or fracking revolution, if you want to call it that, um, to generate even more revenue for our public schools in a, in a fiscally constrained um, time when, when a legislative session will have to deal with uh, the state's uh, potential uh, judicial decision on the... Uh, on our, on our spending for our public school systems. Do yeah. you have any concern when you talk about protecting the environment or responsible stewardship of resources on uh, water or air quality in some of the communities where this activity is going on? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of, uh, in terms of water conservation, there's a lot that we can do. You know, I was a supporter in my primary for Prop 5, which yep. I think was a step in the right direction. The Texas Water Development Board says that this is a $52 billion problem that we face as Texans uh, for the next 20 years. Uh, so, Republican or Democrat, I think we can agree that it's not going to be financed all by the state. We're going to have to examine P3 projects. We're going to rely upon, on a regional basis, our county judges to come forward with uh, feasibility studies. I had a chance last week here in Austin to, to visit with the DSAL conference uh, um, for, for the entire state of Texas, and the fact that we have uh, brackish water that could cover the state's geography um, up, to, up to four feet is pretty astounding. And brackish water can be used in fracking for industrial purposes here and now and, and is substantially cheaper to refine than, say, seawater. Yep. Uh, but even that margin is, is decreasing thanks to newer technologies um, that are being developed elsewhere. But um, within the next generation, you know, I think it's, uh, it's exciting that we can be able to conserve uh, on the supply side and, and on the demand side. Um, what about air, well, talk about air quality because, you know, on, on your website there's a, a, a basic... Uh, you know, fight excessive D.C. regulation is one of the things that you stand for. It's a little bit of a dog whistle in politics these days to, to beat up on Washington, D.C. That often translates in Texas into Texas versus the EPA. The EPA has been trying to, um, to, to put into place some protections on air quality that uh, people in power, at least at the moment in Texas, don't much like, and it sounds like you don't much like it uh, either. Any concerns about air quality as it relates to some of this well, activity? Well, I, th I think the better regulatory body for, uh, for air quality would be at the, at the state level. And, and Texas Commission on Environmental Quality would be... That would be correct. Our, and, our environmental regulator. Yes. Right. And, uh, and, you know, they've done an effective job over, over, the, over the years, and they have a good relationship with the private sector. Yep. And, and in my opinion, when you have overbearing uh, regulations, it impacts uh, job creation and, and the development that we've had these past few years. But again, I think there's ways that we can do this in a, in a progressive fashion and not have an emotional reaction in terms of the designing of, of regulations. 
And, and sometimes we define compassion by the amount of rules and regulations and laws that we create in D.C. as opposed to allowing Texans to assess what fair standards should be. Let me ask you about uh, a couple aspects of this that have come up recently. Uh, one is climate change, climate science, global warming, call it what you want. A little bit of a kerfuffle recently. We reported on an interview you gave to, again, Nina Satija, our reporter, in which you said, among other things, the following, unedited, this is the quote, I think people can agree that there has been warming, you know, in recent years. Is that your point of view? Well, the, uh, I, I'm glad I had the opportunity to, to clarify the remark because... Uh... <laughs> That's what they always say. <laughs> clarify the remark. You either believe it or you don't. <laughs> no, I, I think that... Um... And, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to clarify, but what we're, we can agree is that over the course of human history that there's climatic changes. Uh, there's been warming and, and there's been freezing. Uh, the question and the bigger debate is whether it's anthropogenic and whether it's man-made. And I think, my personal opinion, is that we need to depoliticize that aspect, that rubric. Good luck. And, uh, <laughs> and allow the scientists to make a definitive call one way or the other. And it has to be viewed over a longer-term lens rather than... So you're willing to go along with science on this? Absolutely. You are. So you say that you're willing to go along with science on this and you're willing to accept that there is warming uh, that has been going on over the last couple of years? Well, I'm... And you're running as a Republican for this office. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, the fact is, you know, this puts you... I mean, you clarified all you want. This yeah. puts you at odds with a lot of people who are your party brethren. Including, you mentioned the TCEQ. You and Brian Shaw, the chairman of the TCEQ, don't sound to me like you see this issue the same way. Well, I, my uh, viewpoint has, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to make clear is that there's been changes over the course of time. Uh, there's debate over whether or not it's, it's anthropogenic. It's not my place as an aspiring uh, public servant to, because uh, I'm by no means a scientist or engineer. Right. Uh, there's a healthy and robust debate. Uh, NASA scientists, um, you know, this week alone just have debated um, over what the consensus is in terms of those uh, climatic changes. The models are even debated in terms of the forward projections yep. of climate change. So, you know, for, for all I, if I'm privileged to serve Texas and I'm able to serve in this role as land commissioner, I have to deal with the immediate needs on the Gulf Coast. And, that, and that's where I can have some impact. And I'm more than happy to talk about, you know, those, those positions. Well, let's actually talk about the coast, and let's talk about the question specifically of, of open beaches. That's another topic that is uh, sort of bubbling to the surface in this, in this campaign. Uh, the open beaches uh, uh, issue is often posed, in very simplistic terms, as private property versus public access. There was a decision, uh, Texas Supreme Court decision, Severance versus Patterson, a few years ago, in which the court came down on the side of private landowners. Uh, uh, that decision was opposed by the, your current occupant of the general land office, Jerry Patterson, and it was appealed as state attorney general by Greg Abbott. Uh, you are with the severance side, the private landowners side of this. Can you explain why you come down on the side of private landowners and not on the side of public beaches, especially since back when a constitutional amendment was on the ballot in 2009, 77% of voters said we put public beaches ahead of private landowners? Well, we also have to clarify that, you know, the Texas Open Beaches Act is a, is a very broad law, and Texans, in my opinion, can access the, the dozens, if not hundreds, of public points that, that are located on the 30, 365 miles of, of coastline that we have in the, in the state of Texas. And the ruling is limited to the, the, Galveston, to the Galveston Island. But as I said before, this is an area of our state that generates billions of dollars of revenue, not only from 
as we said before, petrochemical activities, but tourism. Yeah. And you have folks that are retiring and, and building homes and building lives and businesses. And, you know, as somebody who is a private property advocate, I've, I've stood behind that ruling and I've, I, I continue to do so. Um, and and that's, that's my position. You're an advocate for personal responsibility? So if somebody makes the personally responsible decision to buy property on the coast knowing that an event like a hurricane may change the, the property line, shouldn't they have the personal responsibility to accept the fact that the, we're going to put public beaches ahead of, of private property? Well, two points. I mean, uh, the, under the ruling, there's a distinction between evulsive events, and, and that's where that's the key distinction. So situational versus over time systemic erosion, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and, and having the immediate impact of, say, a hurricane or um, other nat natural disaster, heavy winds, um, you name it, the, the distinction is, is that. And so I, I don't believe that the state should take uh, land in those events. Uh, but secondly, there's Isn't also Mother Nature taking it rather than the state? Well, the state has the right to take it. And, and that's where, if I'm land commissioner, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we, at least as it relates to Galveston Island, that we won't continue to take So what policy, what policy is land commissioner, given the, the Supreme Court ruling, what, what would the land office's position on open beaches be? Well, I mean, I, like I said, I think there's a, there's a balance here. We can continue to protect this law and allow for Texans to have accessibility points. Uh, for example, down in uh, Cameron County and Nuestas County, there's uh, a, a recent conservation of, uh, of, of coastland that allows for Texans now to uh, enjoy the beach and coastline in, in, in South Texas. And this, is, this continues, the, port, uh, the Powderhorn Ranch as well. Yep. Uh, so there's, you know, there's, there's active conservationists and ranchers and landowners throughout our state that, that are committed to this, in addition to the state. Again, there's hundreds of, of access points, and you know, I want to continue uh, preserving that, whether it's uh, in the Boulevard Peninsula or... Uh, you know, or rollover pass. So you don't expect that this ruling would extend beyond Galveston? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll leave that to the judiciary in terms of how that's uh, going to be picked up, and there will probably be a piece of litigation that will arise at some point um, yep. that will provide a little bit more clarity statewide and throughout the, the coast. But, but a second point I want to make is just the, the compensation aspect of it, and speaking with landowners that after a state taking, many of them are left aggrieved without a, a just compensation for the taking. You've mentioned the permanent school fund a few times as another part of what the uh, GLO job uh, entails. Uh, you said $32, 33000000000 billion maybe now is where the balance of that fund is. Um, and the growth of that fund over time happens for two reasons. It happens because of lease rental income and it happens because of sound investments. That's really all that you can do in terms of education in the office. You may have a, a platform or a bully pulpit to advocate for certain other issues. We'll talk about those in a little while. But the fact is really it's just managing the fund. Right? So the education well, aspect of this is really just managing the fund. I would differ with, uh, from that viewpoint in the sense that I'm a former public high school teacher. I'm involved with the public charter school movement in North Texas with Uplift Education where the results have been phenomenal in the inner cities uh, of, uh, of the Metroplex. And you know, I, I'm passionate about tactical reforms that we can make in the classroom to continue uh, to improve public schools uh, in the K through, in K through 12 systems. So, yes, I'm handing the paycheck, and that's a primary responsibility to the State Board of Education, but why not have a land commissioner that can bring a classroom experience uh, to the people of Texas and bring those experiences to the, to the next session? So your intention is to be, even though you can't actually impact policy, you could be an advocate. Absolutely. And that's something you intend to be. Absolutely. On veterans, you do have your hand on the wheel a little bit more firmly. Uh, there are things that you can do, uh, as you say. Uh, that, that part of the responsibility of the office. You've talked a lot about PTSD. You've talked about home loan assistance, health care. 
assistance programs for the million 700,000 veterans in, in Texas. Do you mean for the land office to be a clearinghouse of information? What can you do in an activist way to be an advocate for veterans in Texas? Well, you know, the two clear points that I've talked about in my, my travels has been uh, the rate of suicide now in the military community that exceeds any other cause of death in our nation's military active duty or reserve component. Uh, and secondly, the rate of unemployment in the post-9-11 generation of military veterans uh, exceeds 10% uh, uh, countrywide. And that's unacceptable. Uh, I'm a military veteran who still wears the uniform as, as a reservist, and I think as Texans we recognize we can do a better job. The VA scandal just continues to raise a, a, a red flag in terms of how we're servicing our veterans. And I think I can act as an accountability officer not only with the feds, but also rally private sector resources with public resources to serve our vets. So an example, last week as I had a chance to go to New Braunfels, Texas, to work with Helping a Hero. It's an organization based in Houston where we dedicated a home to uh, an Army vet, a specialist, uh, J.P. Lane, who uh, was in Iraq at the same time that I was in Afghanistan. And as he was clearing an IED convoy in the Sunni Triangle, um, his, his convoy was impacted and he's, as a result, a double amputee. His uh, wife left him. Uh, he lost his job when he came back after her uh, medical treatment at Brook Army Medical Center. But these stories are way too common, and we need a land commissioner that understands uh, the, the plight of many of our veterans, not only here in Texas, we've got, as you, as you mentioned, 1.7 million yep. uh, in a population of 26 million. And this is uh, an absolute shame, and as Texans, we recognize that. So energy, education, and veterans, those are the three big aspects of, of the job. A lot of things uh, are not part of your job. And I know it's become fashionable in politics today when you're running for an office to talk about issues that really you have nothing to do with so that you identify for voters core principles. And so it sort of telegraphs to them whether you're adequately conservative or adequately liberal, depending upon what you're doing. On your website, you talk about a whole bunch of issues that, as far as I can tell, have absolutely nothing to do with the land office. You open the door, and so I'm going to walk through it. And I'm going to ask you... <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that, because if you feel the need to unburden yourself to us about your position on abortion or gay marriage or health care, I'm going to ask you about those things. So let's spend a little time talking about issues that admittedly do not affect the land office, okay, and about which you have nothing. The easy topics. The easy topics. Yeah. Non-controversial. <laughs> your campaign website describes you as, quote, pro-life and pro-family. You say, I believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman. Correct? Characterize your position correctly? Your Aunt Laura doesn't agree with you on gay marriage. Your cousin Barbara doesn't agree with you on gay marriage. Your great-grandfather Prescott Bush, for whom you're named, was the treasurer for a national fundraising campaign for Planned Parenthood. Are you the black sheep or the white sheep of the family as far as these issues go? Evan, you know how to ask a question, man. That was... Uh... Well, uh, go ahead. I... I uh... Look, we're just like any family. We have our disagreements. We have... Uh, <laughs> I should say have, so. <laughs> yeah. we, we have uh, liberals. We have conservatives. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I said from the beginning of my campaign 22 months ago, I'm uh, a man of my own right who stands in my own shoes, and these are, these are my positions. Right. Um, and that's what, you know, I'm offering the voters of Texas in this campaign. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm focused on this agency making it effective, continuing the legacy of Jerry Patterson, right. and talking about my background um, on, on these um, important areas. But, but of course, again, Mr. Bush, if these are not parts of your job, 
why talk about them? Well, these are, these are core principles that I stand on. Right. And in, to your point, a lot of voters, uh, whether it's in the primary or in the general, they want to know it. And, and Texans should know it. Voters should, be, uh, should have access to uh, what, my, what my viewpoints are and, and really, for that matter, any candidate uh, running. And so that we're in the interest of full disclosure, getting those positions out from the in beginning. In case anybody wants to know where you stand. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't it your party uh, uh, the needle moving on same-sex marriage? Uh, it seems as if the country is moving much more quickly toward uh, 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 putting that to the side as an issue than it is on some of the other social issues that come up from time to time. You are not with the elements of your party. Ken Melman, who was the chair of the RNC when your uh, Uncle George was uh, president, uh, a number of other people, uh, Dick Cheney uh, in the Republican Party, who have come around and said, no, we think the same-sex marriage ought to be. You're not with them. You're, you're where you are. Well, I've had conversations with both individuals that you mentioned on it, and we've had a healthy dialogue on it. That's how I personally define marriage, traditional marriage. Uh, on, what, on, what, on what basis I, is that definition? Well, I, I think that the First Amendment has to work both ways. That if you come to a point where the government regulates the, the definitions of religious institutions in terms of how they define uh, core uh, institutions like marriage, then, uh, then we run afoul of what the initial definition of the First Amendment is. Having said that, as Texans and as Americans, I think we can recognize legal recognition for, for marriage or for two willing, uh, two willing folks to, to, to marry and to bond and, and to love one another. Uh, but in terms of the actual marriage and the, and the, the holy sacrament of that, as a Catholic, uh, that's where my personal definition yeah. is. And, uh, but again, on the legal recognition side, we can... Uh, we can recognize that as Texans. As an, I'm running for an executive position, and if I'm able to put my hand on the Bible and, and swear to uphold the laws of the Constitution of the state, I've got to uphold those laws. I can't take my own opinion into, uh, into account. Yeah. Obamacare. Again, not a responsibility of the General Land Office, from what I can tell. Uh, <laughs> quote, on your website, every dollar should be defunded, every word should be repealed. That an accurate representation of your point of view? It, it is. Um, I, I think that it's. Um, if you travel to other parts of our state, you'll see that uh, it's impacted physicians' accessibility to care. It's driven up premiums. It's resulted in carriers pulling back their coverage for employers. Uh, the cost of doing business, including mine, has has gone up. Um, the, the long-term effects have yet to be uh, impacted and, and felt. Uh, there's different, better ways to provide accessibility to health care. And when you look at other states that have experimented with this, whether it's Arkansas or Louisiana, that have created copay structures for folks up and down the, the income chain, uh, you'll find that there's a meaningful alignment of interest between the, the end user, the physician, and the hospital carriers themselves, and it reduces costs. The, the, the cost of health care has been, has been skyrocketing. Well, in fact, here in Texas, it's about to pass public education as a percentage of the budget. And if you talk to people in the counties that you say you've been visiting uh, on the Land Commission campaign trail, the county judges in those counties will tell you that they're for some kind of expansion of Medicaid or some solution to this problem because the uncompensated care costs in the county hospitals going up, that's being passed on to people in property tax, in, in the form of property taxes. So if you want to cut property taxes, dealing with health care might be a good place to start. Well, you know, again, it's not a core function of the GLO. And, and again, there's... But it's on... <laughs> But it's on your website. We can. Uh, I wouldn't be asking it if you didn't feel the need to tell us your point of view on the subject. Well, we can, uh, you know, look at ways in indexing uh, the cost. I mean, 
the way I, I view it differently, I view it that we should take folks off of Medicare and Medicaid. That means that you're at the federal poverty rate. A better solution is creating more economic opportunity for Texans so that we can lift them off of, uh, off of Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and, and there's ways in which we can index the, the pricing. We can align uh, private, have more competition for insurance carriers, yep. health savings accounts. You, you would acknowledge that 5.7 million Texans without health insurance, which is what we just heard last week according to the census, about 22% of the population. That is not a situation we want to be in. Well, insurance doesn't necessarily define good health. Um, we still have a lot of folks that, that are at or near bad health, uh, health conditions with insurance. It, it doesn't, just having insurance doesn't reduce the cost of health care. We need to do more, more preventive measures to... Uh, but it, would to be, it, it does have something to do with access, though, doesn't it? Access to health care. Yeah, no, it, it ha but it, it still doesn't define better, better health for, for Texans. Uh, you concerned that maybe some of those 5.7 million people are veterans? Maybe this actually is part of your responsibility, after all, would be to figure out how to get health care for those veterans. Well, the VLB does already provide, and that's, that's always been a commitment that Texans have made since World War II to veterans. Uh, we also work with the Hazelwood Act to ensure that veterans uh, have an opportunity to finance their post-secondary education as well. So there's, uh, there's a lot that the agency does uh, in terms of looking out for uh, for folks that, that uh, are members of the military. And uh, so we, we can truly be a blueprint and actually we're accomplishing that a lot better than the federal VA has done. Education. And again, this is part of, admittedly, part of the GLO portfolio. Quote, we need to have school choice and we need it now. Do you mean vouchers and you're not just telling us or is there some other aspect of school choice <laughs> that you support? Well, I would, I'm a full... Uh, I, I'm full advocate for, for private vouchers in limited instances. I'm, I'm for decentralizing um, education in which uh, you know, school boards and folks at the county level and the local level should be making assessments. Uh, but you said you're, for, you're for vouchers in limited cases? What cases? Well, some communities may decide that they, you know, in rural parts of our state, they may decide that uh, the conventional school systems that are serving kids uh, are doing a good job in other inner city areas where where kids uh, are not being served in a, in, a, in, a, in a proper and appropriate way, uh, choose to, to move towards a, a full-blown voucher uh, model. Here in Texas, we have a, a public charter uh, model, right. which is, I think, a step in the right direction. I, like I mentioned before, I'm involved with Uplift to Education, where 90% of our children are at the federal poverty rate, and over 92% are minority, but 100% of the children are graduating from high school. Um, and I'm not saying that public charters are the panacea to solving all of our issues in public ed, yeah. but, but the teaching techniques that are being implemented, the curriculum changes that are being made, and the alignment of interest for leadership in these schools, it's something to behold, something to watch. Let me, let me come back to this question of, uh, of vouchers, uh, limited vouchers. The, the, the criticism of voucher programs is often about accountability or lack thereof. Those dollars migrate out of the public education system to parochial or private schools. Accountability measures don't follow them. It was your uncle, George W. Bush, who as president was all about banging the drum for accountability. So doesn't this go against that core principle that we ought to have our tax dollars spending on public education be accountable if you're letting my tax dollars migrate out of the public no, absolutely. system? absolutely. The same schools that would be part of a voucher system would be assessed the, the same exact way. And it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, you know, whether it's up, Uplift Education with FWISD, where we have a great relationship with Superintendent Dansby, and same for DISD. The conventional schools have learned a lot from, from us, and we've learned a lot from them. Um, and so, look, it, we need to take the, sometimes we need to take the adults out of the equation and, and start focusing more on student 
performance. Yep. Um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, you know, high stakes uh, accountability test advocate, but we do need to have some level of measurement, uh, not only among uh, Texans, but, but throughout the nation to see how we're competing vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. I went looking, since you told us about Obamacare, you told us about abortion and gay marriage, you told us about health care, I went looking for immigration on your website. No mention of immigration. <laughs> and then I thought that your dad, uh, former Governor Jeb Bush, uh, talked about illegal immigration as an act of love earlier this year and got walloped by people in his own party. I remember what happened to your uncle George W. Bush in attempting to pass comprehensive immigration reform in 2006. And I thought back to Rick Perry uh, getting killed over in-state tuition, calling people who didn't support in-state tuition heartless during the 2012 campaign. And I thought, well, it's probably an issue that is rife with landmines, but I feel obligated to ask you where you are <laughs> on immigration. Even if other people may have gotten into some trouble uh, uh, speaking their mind on it, you seem comfortable speaking your mind on other issues. Tell us what you think we ought to do <laughs> on immigration. Well, um, you know, I, I don't have uh, the magic wand. I, w I wish I did on this issue, It's because it's terribly complicated. Uh, I think that it will require a multi-generational viewpoint on the issue. Uh, the unaccompanied child situation on the board just, just raises a light on the overall complexities of, of the problem. Um, you know, I've said publicly and on the trail that we need to find a, an overall solution. I think mechanically the better time to deal with the issue is the day after an election rather than the day before. Uh, that seems to be what the president's doing. Well, he, he may be doing it through executive order. Uh, well, but he seems to, but he's kicked it until after the election. Correct. Right. And, but you know, it's never it's, going to be politically easy, Mr. Bush, to get this issue solved. Well, I, I think it'll be, it'll, it'll be easier the day after an election when, it's, uh, when the environment is dethrottled uh, and you have leadership from this president and you have on a bipartisan basis folks that are coming together. You know, as related to the uncompanied child situation, to see Representative Cuellar come together with Senator Cornyn to come forward with a sensible yeah. short-term solution on the unaccompanied... I mean, that, that to me is a positive uh, development. Um, and maybe, you know, Congressman McCall is correct in saying that it's a piecemeal approach uh, in, terms of, in terms of solving this issue. So what I mean by that is national security on one end, uh, what to do with the undocumented that are already here on, on the next, and, and then how do we deal with this from, um, from, from an economic standpoint. We are the world's largest economy, and we have uh, needs from H-1B visas to uh, immediate labor needs in yep. the construction industry and agriculture. So... Um, how do we balance that? How do we uh, deal with that? We elect folks in D.C. To, to solve this. It's a federal issue, but we also need leadership from the president to bring folks together. But there are aspects of it that are clearly state concern. And I mentioned in-state tuition as it related to Governor Perry in 2012. He was booed at that debate in Florida over saying that he believed in-state tuition was the correct thing to do. You know that in-state tuition for the children of undocumented persons has been the law of Texas going back more than 10 years, but it is fixing to not be the law if some people running for office this cycle get their wish. Would you support maintaining the current law on in-state tuition, or would you join those who seek to overturn it? Well, we'll see uh, how it all plays out. No, I'm asking you session. what you want to do. <laughs> what would you do? Well, uh, my viewpoint is, uh, you know, if you actually review the controller's report uh, from an economic perspective, it's really a nominal cost for the state of Texas uh, to support in-state tuition. It's, I think, by last count, a little over a million dollars, and there's just a few hundred students that are taking advantage of it. Um, you know, until there's a sensible alternative right. that, that has been presented by anybody else, 
um, you know, have at it. So, but, you, so, so you're saying you're for it unless there's a sensible alternative. Unless there's a, and there's, there's indexing. Again, there, there doesn't have to be hard rules that are set in fact. Right now the rule is you have to be in public schools for at least three yeah. years before you can take advantage or apply for the program. Maybe we index it out over the course of, you know, K through, K through 12. So you vest over a certain amount of time, 100% if you start from the beginning from K or, you know, at 50% at fifth grade and, and so forth. Um, and so unless there's an alternative that's provided um, to, to assess a, a future for these children that can contribute to the Texas economy and to the future of our country, you know, let's, let's, let's have that discussion. This question of in-state tuition, the broader question of immigration, you heard, we heard it come up in the debate between uh, Senator Davis and General Abbott uh, uh, before we came out here, Mr. Bush. A lot of it has to do with language. And, and rhetoric, the way that people are talking about the border, talking about the Latino community, talking about the issue of immigration. You are the co-founder of the Hispanic Republicans of Texas. One of your co-founders, George Antuna, who will be speaking at this festival tomorrow, has been critical of some elements, of the, and he's a Republican proudly, but has been critical of some elements of the Republican Party for going a little too far in, in, in the rhetoric used, and that it may be, in fact, pushing Latinos who would otherwise, otherwise be disposed to support Republicans away from, away from the party. Um, on in-state tuition, on sanctuary cities, on Arizona-style uh, show-us-your-papers legislation, on voter ID. There have been a lot of concerns expressed over the last number of years by Republicans who want to attract Latinos to the party, believe that Latinos have, by and large, small-c conservative values. Do you worry that your party, in passing some of this or talking about some of this legislation, is going to be pushing the Latino community that will soon be in the majority out of your arms and into the arms of Democrats? I don't, you know, because, look, we, along with uh, folks at HRT and other folks running statewide, including Attorney General Abbott, have been focusing on the, the, the real issues, and that's how do we create better schools? How do we make Texas competitive? How do we deal with our highways and our water development issues? These are the key issues that we'll deal with in the session. The Hispanic agenda is the American agenda. That, that's what I've been talking about in my campaign trail, and, and that's why there's a meaningful uh, alignment I, you know, look, we can't control, um, you know, any discussions from what I can do in my campaign and what I've been, uh, what I'm about to do in my general election is spend uh, an extraordinary amount of time in the Hispanic community. And, and I hear the reverse. I hear from a lot of conservative Democrats that traditionally would vote uh, a la palanca, straight down ticket, that are now looking uh, statewide voting Republican. Um, and they feel like the Democratic Party has changed and moved away from some of their uh, more conservative sensibilities. Um, so that's, that's, some, that's an area that we've been focusing on our campaign, yeah. um, and I'm, I'm excited to be a part of that. The, the Republican Party is often said to be at war with itself. Uh, do you think that's exaggerated? Do you think that the media or anybody else who talks about there being not one Republican Party but two parties, the Tea Party and the traditional business Republican establishment party, that actually this is overblown? Or do you think there really is a, a, a meaningful difference within the party? There's a, look, what I, what I love about being a Republican is we can have an honest discussion on the issues. And Ronald Reagan is adored in both the Tea Party and in, quote, establishment circles. Yeah. Um, and one of his famous sayings was, we can be 80% friends as opposed to 20% enemies on the issues. But you know, Mr. Bush, there are a number of people in Texas who don't believe that 80% is adequate, that if you are 80% my friend, I'm going to primary you. <laughs> well... You know, that, that, that's, uh, that's politics. And, um, you know, so, you know, whether you are towards the middle or, or towards yeah. the right, I mean, you've got to be willing to stand on those issues. And 
um, look, we're going to have disagreements, um, but you know, the issue of unity and that message has really gone out there, at least in my discussions and uh, throughout the state. And I think my party's committed to uh, you know, driving forward you know, leading up to November. Do you self-identify as a Tea Party Republican? I self-identify as a Reagan conservative. Um, I'm obviously you know, a member of uh, uh, you know, a family that's been involved in Republican Party politics, but, but my, my first uh, political memories were when he was president. Yep. Um, and the more that I've studied him and the beginning of my campaign right. went to um, his uh, museum, uh, continue to be inspired by his legacy. But you know, Mr. Bush, that your family's brand of republicanism is not necessarily in favor today. I wonder if you believe your Uncle George or your grandfather could get out of a Republican primary alive in Texas today. Well, you know, again, I'm a man uh, of my own right. And, uh, you know, I've been running in my campaign uh, presenting my own, my own ideas. And my campaign's about the future and, and not talking about the past and, and what was litigated. We'll leave that to historians to assess as to what was conservative and what was not and what's conservative enough. You consider no. your Uncle George W. to be a conservative? Absolutely. You consider your grandfather to be a conservative? Yeah. Absolutely. You think everybody in the party today agrees with you? Probably not, but, you know, I, I can't remember the last time there was 100%. Agreement on anything. anything. <laughs> in the... Um, in the uh, speaking a little bit of the past, I didn't want to talk about the future, a little bit of the past. In July of 2011, you did something that many people thought was, was odd and probably uh, ultimately not going to prove fruitful, and that is you endorsed Ted Cruz for the United States Senate against David Dewar. Cruz may have been at, I don't know, 2% in the polls at the time. Why did you do that? What did you know that the rest of people in your party and maybe people in this room did not know about Ted Cruz? Well, I, you know, I happen to know Senator Cruz for some time now, dating back to my time at, you know, MAFPAC, where, you know, I was... Uh, you know, member of that, the organization, and we developed a dialogue over time and really didn't know about his political uh, ambitions until, you know, shortly before he ran. He asked for my support early on. Uh, again, I had friends that were involved uh, in, in the race, including, uh, you know, Roger Williams, a great friend of mine, yep. being in Fort Worth. And I, I you know, it, it was nothing against Lieutenant Governor Dewhurst. I admire him and his service and have a great relationship with yep. him. But it was more in support of Ted, and um, I was happy to help him out in this primary race. Has it turned out the way you thought it would? <laughs> With Senator, Senator Cruz in office. I'm asking you to assess his time in office. Well, you know, I think he's been a forceful advocate for the issues that uh, we've talked about today, yep. um, you know, on Obamacare and, and now increasingly on the international stage. Yep. Um, but, you know, he is, um, you know, a, a force of nature on the conservative side, and um, he's, he's fearless. And... You know, honestly, there's a lot of folks that, that are hungry for that, that type of leadership in right. Washington, D.C. And so, um, you know, we, we still exchange texts here and there, and, um, you know, obviously we'll, we'll help him in whatever he needs. Well, the exact quote that you gave, again, my colleague Nina Satija uh, a couple of weeks ago was, Ted Cruz is the future of the Republican Party. Is that an endorsement for president? Well, we still have 45 days left to election. No, 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 no. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're land commissioner or the man in the moon. He wants your endorsement. So are you endorsing him for president? I'm staying out of that race. Really? I, I, you know, it just... So um, you're not going to endorse at any point in a Republican primary? I will not endorse... Uh, what if your dad runs? What kind of son are you? <laughs> really? <laughs> if your dad runs, you're not going to endorse your dad? Well, I, you know, I, I think folks know that I love him, and um, 
Love and 75 cents to get you Coke, honestly. So, so you're telling me you would not endorse Ted Cruz over Rick Perry. You would not endorse your dad over either of them. My focus has to be on this agency. If, if I'm entrusted by the voters of Texas to be land commissioner, that's, that's going to occupy my time. You know the headline tomorrow is going to be George P. Bush calling too busy to endorse his dad. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I... Um... <laughs> All right. You caught me on that one. I got you on that one. All right. Um, we're going to take questions in a second. I've completely lost track of the time, which happens. We've got a little bit of time left. We're sort of dead. Are we done? Well, I'm going to go five minutes longer because it's my festival. That's fine. Um, <laughs> um, what is the long-term play here, Mr. Bush? Mark McKinnon, who worked for your Uncle George, uh, said the other day, he did the math. He figured uh, eight years of the next president and eight years of the president after that. By 2028, you'll run. Just as your un grandfather was 41 and your uncle was 43, he's now calling you 47. So is that is that where you're headed for, to, to be 47? You have some aspirations long-term to do something else? Well, I, you know, obviously great friends with Mark but, and admire him and enjoyed working with him on the campaign, but he's uh, flat wrong. I'm, I'm running for this uh, agency. I'd be privileged to serve Texas yeah. in this role. And, uh, you know, I, I just want to work hard and uh, make the agency so more So you're not effective. thinking at all past land commissioner for four years or eight years? Absolutely not. Really? Yes. You understand that most people think that this is a leap pad for you. Not a lily pad. Well, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a businessman. I, I've been in the private sector all my life. As you mentioned, this is my first run for office. And there's nothing wrong with uh, going back in, into business and finding other passions and pursuits. Uh, you know, if so you're announcing your retirement in eight years today. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. All right. Uh, Mr. Bush, we're going to have time just for a couple, I promise you, a couple of questions. Um, we have microphones in the aisle, do we not? Let's, uh, let's take two or three, and then I swear to you, we'll get out of here. Well, no, we're going to ask you to get up, if you don't mind, and come on to the microphone from the aisle. Sir. Uh, yes, Mr. Bush. Uh, I want to ask, in, whoa. Yeah. Go ahead. My apologies. That would be a hell of a question. <laughs> in, uh, in 1991, the state set up a high-cost gas tax exemption to boost up the natural gas industry. In the 20 years that followed, high-cost gas went from 5 to 55% of the state's gas production. Right. That exemption now totals $1.2 billion, and the LBB says many producers now have no tax liability. Yep. So my question is, should that exemption, exemption remain untouched, or should we start phasing it out and put some of that money towards other areas you advocate for, like education and veterans? This has come up a couple times in the last few election cycles. The high-cost gas exemption, in the eyes of some, is no longer necessary, and it could return a billion dollars back to the state treasury. What do you think about that? Well, I, I don't uh, have an opinion on that, honestly. This is going to be, uh, you know, the legislature that will deal with uh, the issue. Um, having said that, I think there's ways in which we need to find uh, additional revenues to, to deal with potentially a shortfall in public education that will be assessed by the court system. Um, as a, again, with uh, the prosperous times that we've had, we have a fair amount in our rainy day fund. Uh, but in terms of what we need to foot, in terms of transportation and education, uh, this could be one area. But there, there's you'd other be willing, So you'd be willing to look at current tax exemptions? Willing to look at it. Um, yeah. But, you know, on the Gulf Coast, what's exciting is that, uh, you know, the GLO, among other things, manages, uh, you know, a, a potential source of revenue for, for public schools. Um, and with the opportunity to export uh, condensates, we can generate even more revenue through the, uh, through the Gulf Coast. And so... Um, there's, there's, there's some exciting things happening in that place where we can potentially generate more revenue. Sir. All right. Um, my name is Jordan Brown. I'm a Texas State student. Um, you seem to mention under climate change that you would agree with scientists 
but that there is still a debate going on about whether it exists. So I pulled up NASA's website, and according to NASA, 97% of climate scientists agree that climate warming trends over the past century are very likely due to human activities. So I'd like to know if you agree with that 97%, or do you still think there is, in fact, a debate going on? <laughs> well, there's, uh, you know, and I've, I've had a chance to read that report, and uh, I've actually have personally met with folks that have uh, visited with other NASA scientists that have split off from that study. In the, three, contend, in the 3%? No, 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 within that 97%. Okay. And they contend that the 97% is overstated. Uh, there's also other uh, groups of scientists that will be meeting here in Texas, including in Houston next week. Uh, it's actually the Climate Change Conference in Houston. Um, I, I don't disagree with the concept of climate change. The disagreement is with anthropogenic, whether it's 100% man-made, and secondly, whether or not the climatic models that are designed by some of the study groups are as alarmist as they've been made out to be. That's, that's the dispute where science um, needs to, to be focused over the long term. Oh, hi, my name is Amadita Redondo, and my question is, you said you'd like to bring, uh, cut the EPA uh, regulation. I grew up in Galena Park, Texas, um, close to all the refineries. How would you work with the EPA, or how would you change the regulations that are releasing pollution and carcinogens into that area? Well, um, you know, again, this is a, a huge issue in, in the Upper East Coast, uh, where I've had a chance to, to visit, and, uh, you know, the TCEQ, along with other environmental groups, uh, have had a chance to brief me on some of the developments that we can do. Uh, you know, regardless of your politics, emission standards have been uh, tightened, um, regardless of whether or not Texas uh, participates uh, through the private sector management or compliance of those regulations. Um, so what, what is important is that we find the balance. And I, I think that the state of Texas is a better regulatory body for dealing uh, with those emission standards so that we can, in a, in a responsible way, continue our economic development of, of our state and continue to create jobs. But on the other hand, have a long-term viewpoint to making sure that folks in the community aren't impacted by emissions. Okay, I'm going to take one more, and then I've got to defer to time and to the party that we all are going to move on to next. Sir. Hi, my name is Charlie. I'm a freshman here at the University of Texas, and um, okay. I know one of the hot topic issues recently has been with the um, believed hyper-politicization of textbooks in the state, um, most of which is blamed on Rick Perry and the kind of conservative party here in Texas. And I know it doesn't exactly pertain to the office that you're running for, but as a teacher and a member of the Republican Party, I wondered what your opinion was on the issue. Do you have a point of view about the State Board of Education's work on curriculum, specifically history, which was the area that you taught? Absolutely. You know, I'm a viewpoint, uh, I hold a viewpoint that all, just as whether it was my education here at ET, um, is, is for a robust discussion uh, of, all, of all sides of, a, of, of debate, whether it's creationism, uh, you know, versus evolution and uh, evolution theory. And so, um, you know, I'm, again, for a decentralization where communities should be the ones defining what their curriculum should be. Local standards have typically been the way that we define um, these issues. And so, um, you know, hope to work with the State Board of Education more on generating more revenue for them, but, but secondly, empowering teachers, students, having more parents involved with, uh, with the future of public schools here in Texas to define what those with those curriculum. So you would like to see some of those curriculum decisions kicked from the State Board of Education to local communities? 
Well, the State Board of Education is a, is a pretty good cross-section of, of the state. It's a you know, robust discussion that you see in the, the debates that have taken place throughout the state. Yep. But there should be some input. There should be more options yep. provided candidly instead of, you know, kind of the either-or, um, you know, offerings that are typically out there in terms of the textbooks that are available. Um, but again, in a fiscally constrained environment, it's sometimes hard to expand upon those options that would be necessary for administrators to make those, those assessments. Mr. Bush, thank you so much for your time. We enjoyed having you here. Please yeah. give George P. Bush a hand. Thank you. Let me encourage all of you here to join us first and foremost on the, uh, on the plaza under the UT Tower uh, for a party uh, kicking off the opening of the festival. Use shuttles all weekend long to get from venue to venue. We'll see you back tomorrow morning bright and early with Dan Patrick at 8.30. Thanks very much.